So I'm, I'm starting class today with the warning that you're going to be leaving class very, very hungry. <laughs> and we learned this from this week's Torah portion. I'm talking about spiritual hunger. We learned this from this week's Torah portion where, oh, thank you, where um, Moses, Moshe is recounting what happened to the Jewish people in the desert. And he says to them, Vaya'ancha, vaya'ivecha, vaya'achilcha as haman. That means that he afflicted you, and he starved you, and simply meaning, and then he fed you the man. But it actually means, in another way you can look at it and say, he afflicted you and he starved you by feeding you the man, the manna from heaven. And this is actually a discussion in the Talmud. The Talmud asks, how does the manna do starvation? We're feeding you, why are you starving? So there are two different opinions between Rav Ami and Rav Asi. Rav Ami says it was because you cannot compare a person who has bread in his basket to somebody who does not have bread in their basket. What does that mean? In order to eat manna, it came fresh every day from heaven. You couldn't save for one day to the next. It's like there was nothing in your bank account for tomorrow. So there was a certain starvation. You didn't feel satisfied or secure. You weren't 100% sure, am I going to get manna tomorrow? So that already, even if the mana was good and it was satisfying, that already gave you a starvation. You didn't know that you are going to have tomorrow. There was no security. The expression in the Talmud is you can't compare somebody who has bread in their basket, means food for tomorrow, to food, somebody who does not have food for tomorrow. And then Rav Asi says, no, the reason is because you can't compare somebody who sees their food to somebody who does not see their food. Because in the mana, you can have whichever taste you want. If you wanted it to taste like dates, it would taste like dates. If you wanted it to taste like banana cake, it would taste like banana cake, whatever you wanted. But the, the form and the appearance of the mana did not change. So you would be eating food that looked like mana but tasted like dates, or looked like mana but tasted like banana cake, and there's a lack of satisfaction when you eat food like that, not seeing what it actually tastes like. Hi! I saw Catherine this Sunday, so <laughs> we, we had an interview with Dennis Prager about our class oh, wow. <laughs> for the telethon, yeah, oh, so, so I'm seeing Catherine twice in a week. <laughs> it's mine. So I was just warning everybody that we're all going to be starving from leaving class, and that's because the man made us starving. What was starving? So physically is that we didn't know if we were going to have food for tomorrow, and also we didn't see what we were eating. But also, what made us starving is the nature of the bread. You see, physical bread has physical properties. It's a certain weight, it's a certain shape, it has a certain size or taste, and you eat it, and you're satisfied if you're hungry. The mana had endless possibilities. Maybe today you wanted it to taste like steak, and maybe tomorrow you wanted it to taste like ice cream, but whatever you tasted in it, you knew that there were infinite possibilities. And so, because of that infinite possibilities, you never felt satisfied because you knew that there was more that you didn't have that you could have had. And so the same thing it is with Torah study. Torah study is considered food. Just like you are what you eat, you assimilate it within your body, you digest it, it becomes part of you, you are what you study and you know. And Torah is, we study Torah, and it is considered bread for our soul. It becomes assimilated into our mind and part of our psyche. But the thing is that Torah is not like any other discipline. You can master any subject, or pretty much if you have the aptitude or intellectual aptitude for it. You can get to the bottom of it, and you can become a master of it, and you can feel proud. But with Torah study, as much as you know, you're aware that there's endless 
that you don't know. And so when you study Torah in truth, in a genuine way, you're never going to feel satisfied because you're going to be aware that as much as you understand, there's so much more that you don't understand. You're going to feel humbled and, oh my gosh, I can't get enough. There's something I don't feel satisfied. I sense that there's something beyond that I don't have within my grasp. Whatever I grasp, I grasp. But I understand that there's something that leaves me starving over here. So um, today is the yard site of Hanom Bat Avraham. And it is also the yard site, and her neshama should have an aliyah. It's also the yard site of the Rebbe's father, Rebbe Levi Yitzchak. It's a very holy day, the 20th of Menachem Av. And um, you can imagine, being the Rebbe's father, what an incredible person he was. He was a master Torah scholar. He was the rabbi of his city, Nebuchadnezzar, and he was um, a, a major Kabbalist. And as brilliant as he was, it was known that when he spoke, Everybody understood him. You know, that's the time of true brilliance. They said that about the rugged Trevor Gaon too. Like, you read his writings, they're so cryptic, it takes pages and pages to elucidate what he's writing. But they said that when he spoke, everybody understood him, even a young child in the crowd. But there is an exceptional story where that was not the case, and he was once giving a Devar Torah, and he started to bring in all aspects of the Torah and from the Talmud and from the writings of the sages and, and get going deeper and deeper till Kabbal, into Kabbalah until he lost the crowd. Nobody understood what he was saying. And one guy in the crowd finally had the nerve to say, excuse me, Rabbi, but very far stage, who understands? Who understands what you're saying? And so uh, Rabbi Levi Yitzchak, the Rabbi's father, pointed to the back of the room, to a little boy who was standing there humbly and unassuming, and that was the Rebbe. And he said, Der Yingle, Erfarstate. This little boy, he understands. So anyway, today's class is dedicated to the Rebbe's father, without whom we wouldn't be able to understand a lot of the stuff that we, hi, Zizi, that we learned today. And um, in fact, he wrote notes on the Tanya a lot of times, like different, he was a major Kabbalist. And he was different than other people who didn't study Kabbalah. He, he literally studied Kabbalah as Kabbalah in its own uh, cryptic way. And um, he wrote a lot of notes on Tana explaining different things. Like, you know, why does the Alter Rebbe suddenly use five expressions here? And he will explain it a lot. So we don't have a lot of his writings. They were confiscated by the Russians. But when he was in exile, his wife... Twice in a week. <laughs> his wife um, went out. to the, She came to exile with him, even though she didn't have to be in exile. She picked berries. She cooked them into ink. And she gave this to her husband because she knew how much pain he was in that he couldn't share what he learned. And he took the books that he had, and he wrote in the margins, pages and pages and pages. And she smuggled these when she left. And so now we have five volumes of his writings, thanks to his wife, the Rebbe's mother. Uh, a woman went, went by the Rebbe and he said, she said, I want to have a son like you. <laughs> and the Rebbe said, if you act like my mother, <laughs> you will have a son like she did. <laughs> so you can imagine the incredible parents that the Rebbe had. And today, like we said, is the yard site, the, the anniversary of the passing of the Rebbe's father, or Levi Yitzchak. So you had a question? Um, no, I just want, if it's okay, there's just some... Um, Flori Musia Batchaya Syria, the Shlichem and Crown Heights. I don't know if you know Kirshenbaum. 
doesn't matter. I'll tell you after. But their little daughter is like really sick. Okay, she should have a refuah shalema. We're yeah, dedicating this class like, to refuah shalema and to Miriam and everybody who needs a refuah shalema. They should be completely healthy and well. Jewish people should only have thriving health so we can focus on what we need to do. Amen. And that we, is, we that's right. <laughs> we, we, we're here in order to bring the transcendence of Hashem into the physicality of this universe. We are the link between heaven and earth. We are part of the creator and we're part of the creation. We're a little bit of both. We have a physical body, but we have a divine soul. And it's our job to bring the spirituality and the transcendence right here into this universe. We shouldn't have to waste time with these kind of things. And Jewish people should always be healthy and well and emotionally and physically and spiritually. So we are in the middle of chapter 19. And in chapter 19, we began to address some of the other questions that were not answered yet in chapter 18. Where in chapter 18, we were understanding this unique property of the Jewish soul. Where... The, the Jewish person has uh, inherent love for God just by his very nature. He's born with it. Part of having a divine soul automatically means that you love Hashem. And we wanted to, in order to put this love into service for us, we wanted to understand four things about this love. I reviewed them last class. If somebody can tell me at least one thing of those four, I would be very happy. We were trying to understand four things about this love in order to put it to work for, for us. Love? Yeah, the natural love that the Jew has for Hashem. What does it seek? Yeah, that's right. What is it? Thank you very, very much, Nancy. You made my day. So what does it seek to attain? We wanted to know what does this seek to attain. Most love seeks something. And in fact, this is what we were visiting in this chapter. So that's one thing. We wanted to also know how it was an inheritance for us. We answered that last chapter. We wanted to know what is the source of the love. Does anybody want to remind me what's the source of the love? Which soul property this, this love comes from? It's in the neshama. It's in, from the, the divine soul. But we're in the divine soul. A certain soul property. The Ein Sof, which rests in a certain soul property. Keter, no. No, it's... Um, that's right, thank you. I knew you knew it, Faye. It's in the Chochmah. It's in the soul power of Chochmah, and that's where the Ein Sof shines. And then we also wanted to know, and this is something else that we're going to answer in this chapter, we also wanted to know how is fear included in the love? Because normally, fear and love are two separate things. How is fear included in the love? We will answer that at the end of this chapter. The beginning of this chapter, we started off understanding the unique property of the love. And we compared... We, we visited a verse from Proverbs where Shlomo HaMalach writes that Ner Hashem Nishmas Adam, the candle of Hashem, of, of Hashem is the soul of man. And we compared how is the soul similar to a candle, and that is just as the flame tries to escape the wick and be included in its source, so too did the divine soul try to escape its, the body and try to become one with Hashem, even if it means it's going to lose its identity. It's not something logical, it cannot be explained rationally, it's just the nature of the soul. And so then we said that it is not just the divine soul that is drawn from Chachma, the Chachma of Atzilas, that's where the light of the Ein Sof shines. The reason why the light of the Ein Sof shines over there is because it has absolutely no ego of its own. It's utter self-abnegation. And because it has such nullity, it is the perfect vessel for the divine because the divine cannot be understood. So if you're going to try to grasp it 
forget it. It's not the proper vessel. It's something you cannot grasp. And because the Chachma senses that, and that's in fact what characterizes Chachma, it is the perfect place for the divine light to shine. So it is not just the divine soul that has the power of Chachma in it. We started to say that this is the rule from anything that, for anything that is holy. Anything that is holy is drawn from Chachma. The, the, it's going to be in direct proportion. The less it feels itself, the more holy it is. That's the rule for, being, for what is considered holy. Holy is only that which moves itself out of the way in order to feel the divine. Or not, it's not even in order to feel the divine. It's only because it recognizes the truth of the divine. Now, of course, it could be very hard to let go. But actually, it's the most freeing feeling. It's like I once read one way they trap monkeys. One way they trap monkeys mm-hmm. is they... That's right. They, they knock a squash, carved out squash, into the ground, and they put bait inside. And it's just the hole is big enough just for the monkey's fist to go in without anything. But as soon as it grabs the bait, the fist becomes larger, and it, it's stuck by its fist. Now, if the little monkey would just let go of the bait, it's free. But because it wants to hold on to the bait, which for us, because we want to hold on to our ego, we're stuck. <laughs> we're so much freer when we can just let go. One of my brother's older friends said about him, he said, I don't know how to pronounce the word properly, so somebody's going to correct me, but his anonymity, did I pronounce that right? His anonymity freed him from the stupid stuff, wasting time on stupid stuff. (laughs) Because he wasn't about ego, he was able to let go and get so much more done. We felt like he had so much time. How did he touch so many people? How did he achieve so much? Because he let go. He, didn't, he wasn't stuck to his ego. He wasn't keeping his fist inside the squash and not letting go. So that's we classified holiness. Now we're going to come to classify the opposite. We're going to contrast holiness with the other side. Um, this is not in order to put anybody down. This is only to understand the unique mission of the Jewish people. All people in this universe, every single human being has a mission of goodness. A human being is here, needs to bring goodness to the world. The Jewish people has a unique mission, and that comes together with their divine soul. Only Jewish people, every single person has a soul, and that soul comes from Hashem. Every soul is a creation of Hashem. The difference between, and a Jewish person has two souls. They have the regular human soul, but in addition to this regular human soul, they have a divine soul. And the divine soul is not part of the creation. It's not created by Hashem. It is actually a part of Hashem. And that gives the Jew a unique mission, a unique mission for holiness. A Jew has to bring not just goodness to the world, he has to bring holiness, meaning reveal how this world is inherently a part of Hashem, and Hashem is the only existence that there is. Now, it's not a choice. Even if a Jew doesn't want to have this soul, he has the soul anyway, and it's going to give him this restlessness that no matter the simplest Jew on this planet has this restlessness that he's, it's the seeking transcendence because it's part of his unique identity. So now we're going to move to understand what is uh, the opposite of holiness. Um, we are on one to the third page. And the third line. So holiness, this chachma, power of humility and abnegation, I should really just go up one line to keep the thought complete. So the second line from the top on the third page, the page in the English part starts with its very existence. And v'lachei nikra kayachma, therefore this faculty is called chachma. 
which consists of two words, kayach ma, the power of humility and abnegation. The word ma literally meaning what, which we visited in last class, denotes immateriality, as one might say when belittling himself, what am I? Thus holiness refers to anything which, like chachma, draws down from Hashem and nullifies itself before him. I have another copy right here. Who hapech mamish? Oh, and Regina doesn't have one. There's another copy right here. Here, this this is yours. Who hapech mamish? Mi bechinas hakliba v'sitra achrash mi mena nafshes umais ha'elam. This stands in direct contrast to the klipa and sitra achra, from which are derived the souls of the Gentiles. So we're saying the Jewish divine soul derives from holiness. The the non-Jewish um, soul, the human soul, derives from the klipa. The Jewish animal soul, too, derives from klipa, but it derives from the fourth level of klipa, which is klipat noga, which has some good mixed into it. This is a subject that we visited in chapter one, and as soon as I do, we do the next line, we're going we're gonna to speak about this more. Who only act for themselves, saying, give, give, and as Esau said, feed me, in order to be independent beings and entities separated from God, as mentioned earlier, that Klipa is a separate and distinct identity, far removed from God, in direct contrast to Chachma, whose nature is humility and self-nullification. So at the end of chapter 1, we said that um, the souls of Gentiles come from Klipa, and the Zohar says about them that everything that they do is for their own good. In other words, it's ego. Ego, that's right. It's another word for Klipa. That's right, well, right, because Klipa is egocentric. Now, we have to say that not all non Jewish people. Okay, I'm going to be quiet for a second, sorry, because I can't talk over other voices. We're going to say that not all non-Jewish people derive from the three unclean klipot. The, the, the author of the Tani himself in other Hasidic discourses, as well as his grandson and other Hasidic masters, explain that Hasidei Umos Ha'olam, the righteous Gentiles, their soul derives from klipas noga, the fourth level of klipa, which has good in it. And their soul derives from the face of the man on the divine chariot. So they too are able to do good without any ulterior motive. What is the righteous Gentile? The Maimonides classifies this in Mishnah Torah. What is a righteous Gentile? A righteous Gentile is somebody who is scrupulous in keeping the seven Noahide laws. When God gave the Torah to the Jewish people, he gave Moshe, he told Moshe that he needs to teach the seven Noahide laws to all the peoples on this earth. And That's not from Noah. Noah. No, Noah means that they come from Noah because all human beings come from Noah. So every single human being has to abide by these seven laws, which are um, to believe in one God, not to blaspheme, not to commit adultery, not to not to steal, um, not to kill, Everything not to eat. Shabbat. No. no Shabbat, they're not allowed to keep so Shabbat saying, actually. The Ten Commandments, sin. No, because for example, Kibbutz of Aim, like respecting yeah, parents, is not one of the seven. Even though they should respect their parents, they're they're not they're not allowed to eat um, a limb of a live animal, mm-hmm. and they're not and they have to set up courts. So those are the seven. Any any Gentile who takes this upon himself that this was what God commanded Moses 
for him to keep, and he keeps them scrupulously, is considered chasidi umusa almost olam, the righteous Gentiles. They merit a portion in the world to come. This is. One of them is not eating a live animal? Not eating a limb of a live animal. Not eating a limb of a live animal. So you ju- can't just pull off a leg of a lamb and roast it. They it do that a lot with like lobster and stuff. They cut it open and eat it mm-hmm. live today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's, so that's not, not allowed to do that. To s- slaughtered properly. Even if it's not slaughtered, it has to be dead. They, they, oh, okay, that's they can't eat a live, right, an animal while it's alive. So if somebody accepts those upon themselves, they are considered of the righteous Gentiles. They merit a portion in the world to come, which is very unique in uh, something to Judaism, where we don't believe that everybody has to be Jewish. We believe everybody has their unique mission, and if they keep their unique mission properly, they are considered righteous, and they merit the world to come. Was Rabbi Akiva first? Rabbi Akiva stemmed from Gentiles, but he himself, I don't think he was a convert. He was Ben Gerim from converts. And we have a lot of... We have, to, we have to emphasize that if somebody does choose to become Jewish, they too have a divine soul. When they go to the mikvah, they have a divine soul and they are completely Jewish. And many of the greatest people came from converts. In fact, Rabbi Meir was from converts. He was one of the greatest sages to ever have lived. I have something very unique that the Arizal says about this. I don't want to go off topic. But um, it speaks about that when Jacob and Esau met, and it says that he was, he was that uh, Yaakov, Jacob, he was perturbed when he, when he met Esau, his brother Esau. And Rashi explains what disturbed him. He said he was, he was disturbed, maybe he will be killed. And he was disturbed, maybe he will kill others, Achairim. Now, the Arizal, the master Kabbalist, explains what does it mean, Achairim, others. He's afraid, he didn't want to be killed, he didn't want to kill others, but it also means... Rabbi Meir, and this is another story that I'm not going to say now, he was penalized that instead of him being quoted in his name, in the Mishnah, instead of being called by his name, he is called Acherim Omrim. Others say, when it says others say, it means Rabbi Meir. Jacob did not want to kill Esau because he, saw, he was afraid maybe he will kill Acherim, Rabbi Meir, who comes from Esau. So just to know that some of the greatest Jewish people come from converts, and in fact, Mashiach himself has converts in his line of lineage. So a convert is wholly part of the Jewish people, absolutely, and has a divine soul. And no, Jewish people do not proselytize, and anybody could be righteous as long as he keeps the seven Noahide laws. Now, for the majority of non-Jewish people are not from the righteous Gentiles. And when they do good, it is self-serving, and it doesn't have to be. It doesn't, you know, we look at it and we say, how terrible. It, it could, it's not terrible. It's part of the human condition. But it does mean that he comes from Klippa. He, he will be giving charity, and he'll want some recognition or some self-satisfaction out of that. And that's Klippa-oriented. In fact, Rabbi Steinzels points out that when we want to enumerate the differences between Abraham and Bilaam, our sages do not point to Abraham and Bilaam themselves, they point to their students. It says anybody who has these three traits is of the students of Abraham. Anybody who has these three traits is the student of Bilaam. Why are they pointing to their students? Why don't they just enumerate the differences between Abraham and Bilaam, between Abraham and Bilaam? And that's because in some ways, at the, at the source of things, the difference between these two could be too, diff- too subtle to be discerned. 
It's only several steps later that you recognize that these are the students of Abraham and these are the students of Bilaam. In its grossest stage, Kalipa is disgusting. It's animalistic. It's, it's mean. But at its source higher up, the differences are very, very subtle, too hard to define. It all stems from the ego. Where does this come from? Is it coming from a place of ego or is it coming from a place of self-abnegation? And that little kernel, which is so hard to define and clarify, is really the source of everything. Is this holy or is it not holy? There, in fact, there's a story of one of the Hasidic masters that was coming to town and he had a choice where to stay. He could stay at this big, important person in the community's house who was known to be observant or he could stay at this guy who knew that his observance could be a little bit better. And he stayed at the other guy's house. And the, the uh, first guy was very offended. And he came to the rabbi and he said, how do you stay at his house? You should have stayed at mine. Everybody knows that other guy. I don't even know if he keeps Shabbos properly. He said, listen, the other guy, I don't know if he keeps Shabbos properly. But one thing I can tell you is he is humble. The problem with you is that you're so arrogant. And it says in the Talmud that about an arrogant person, God says, him and I can't live in the same place. I figured if God can't stay with you, I can't stay with you either. <laughs> and so that's the point. Ego, klipa is, is characterized by ego. It's self-centeredness. It's all about me. Even when it does something good, there's something in it for himself. Even, maybe in this world, maybe even in the next Maybe it wants a reward in the next world, but there's some self-interest involved. You had a question? Yeah, I was just wondering, you said that about the, uh, the humbleness like he's not doing all the, all the X, Y, Z, um, or whatever. Like, so how come I see it a lot? Like, oh my God, you're not the perfect tune. You're not doing the X, Y, Z, T. Like, that's not what it's about. Huh? That, wait one second. That's a very, very good question. And it is what it's about. There's two things. You know, I... I there's two things over here. There was, there's the core issue. And here we're talking about the core issue right now. We're just talking about black and white. This guy is obviously a man of the klipa. He is so self-centered and so egotistical, he doesn't make room for Hashem. And so the Hasidic rabbi said, I don't want to stay with you. But to say that because the other guy was humble, that it is not okay for him, bless you, that, that it is okay for him not to be observant in the commandments, not going to say that because we want to be close to Hashem, there's one way, and that's the way he told us, and that's by keeping his commandments. Now, everybody has a starting point. It depends where, where they came from and their background, and they have to move in stages. Step by step is the way to go. But remember the ultimate goal. That's, that's, the, prob that's the problem with Reform Judaism. The problem with Reform Judaism, excuse my lack of political correctness, the problem with Reform Judaism is they say, hey, you know what? In today's day and age, Shabbos is outdated. Sorry, do you want to say that maybe it's hard for you now, but that's the way to go? Then you're being honest. If you're going to say, you know what, it's hard for me, so it's not Judaism anymore, that's dishonest. So, so say that you, you're struggling with it still, that you haven't reached that still. But yes, that is what Hashem wants. And yes, that does bring holiness into your life. To say that it's hard for me, so now I don't have to do it, that's... <laughs> At the end of the day, it all comes down to what's the, what's the ultimate motivation. In Judaism, the ultimate motivation has to be for Hashem. And that's why something very interesting. You, have, you know the Shimona Esrei? 
That's the, the Amidah, right? It's called the Shimona Esrei because it has 18 blessings. If you count the blessings, guess how many blessings Shimona Esrei has? It has 19. One was added later. There was a time in Jewish history where there were informers within, from within the Jewish people who were making things difficult for the rest of the Jewish people. And so they made another blessing called Vilam al-Shinim. And for the informers, let there be no hope. Okay? There's this blessing. It's now, they want, it's called Vilam al-Shinim. But what was the other one? Shimona what? Shimona Esrei, which means 18. The it's 18. Amidah. Yeah, it's called, exactly, the silent Amidah. It's called also Shimona Esrei, which means 18 because it has 18 blessings. So the sages that? came, the Vilam al The sages realized that there has to be another blessing added to the Shimona Esrei because of the difficulty that the Jewish people were going to. Vilam, so they needed to add Vilam al But they wanted, they said, who is fit to compose this blessing? Who will do it? And in the end, it was Shmuel HaKatan. Shmuel HaKatan means the small Shmuel who said, I will write the blessing. Why did he write the blessing? Because he was an extremely humble person. And he knew, they knew about him that he has no ulterior motives. He does not want bad for anybody. He's doing this simply for the sake of Hashem. If you want to institute a new custom, it has to be with the right intentions. You want to add a new blessing to the Shimona Esrei? There can't be any ulterior motives involved. It has to be only for Hashem. If somebody wants to add something to Judaism, and they say, so when it comes to adding, you say, you know what? Do, do this mitzvah, even if you don't, you're not in it for the right intentions. You, you look, right now, you're doing something for not the right intentions. You're being uh, um, kind to another person because you think you might get some honor for it. The sages say, well, so you ask yourself, should I do it? I shouldn't do it. Maybe I shouldn't do it. The sages say, if it's a mitzvah, do it anyway, even for the wrong intentions, because eventually you're going to end up doing it for the right intentions. We only say that for something that's already a mitzvah. To create something new at the very inception, the kernel has to be the truth. The kernel has to be only about Hashem. To make a new baracha in the Amidah, it has to be only for Hashem. If somebody wants to make you know, a, a woman's minyan, and the woman read from the Torah, halachically, is there a problem with it? You can find ways that it's not a problem. But you know what? We don't institute that new custom. The reason why we don't institute that new custom is because the kernel of it is not for the right reasons. You can't, from the, at the inception, it's not for Hashem. You want to dive in with a minion? No problem. There's many minions in town. Why do you want to do it? It's not for the right reason. You can't start a new custom not for the right reason. You can't compose a blessing in the Shimona Esrei not for the right reason. You need somebody like Shmuel HaKatan who has no ego and no, ego and no ulterior motives. He's the one to compose the blessing in the Shimona Esrei. So that's where it all stems from. The Chochmah Shebenefesh is the source. The Chochmah Vatzilas, which in turn rests in the Chochmah Shebenefesh, the Chochmah, the power of self-abnegation within the divine soul. That is holiness because that takes itself out of the equation, it's only about Hashem. As opposed to the Klippa, and those people who get their energy from the Klippa, whose souls come from the Klippa, they are typified by egocentricity and self-centeredness. You could say, wait, that's not fair. Why is it that Klippa is self-centered? I mean, you could say, why do plants grow? Why do people can't fly? That's the nature of things. Hashem created everything for a purpose, even Klippa. Klippa is here in order so that we should have freedom of choice. Okay, so now what typifies, typifies klipa? Over here, the altar writes two expressions. Hav, hav, give, give. Where does this come from? This comes from Proverbs. It says like this. La aluka vanais. Hav, hav. The leech has two daughters. Give and give. The leech. 
The leech is a blood-sucking worm. It's a parasite. It fills its body with blood from others. And that in Kabbalah is symbolic of the klipa, who's all about give, taking. They're taking. They're saying, give to me, give, give. And halitani, too, that comes from what Esau, Esau said to his brother Jacob, pour that soup down my throat. Give me the soup. I'll open my, my, my mouth as wide as possible, and I don't want to exert any effort. Just pour it down my throat. That is the hallmark of klipa. It's in direct contrast to Kedusha, holiness, which is about giving and not taking. In fact, there's an expression in the Talmud that says, Min shemaya mehav yahave, mishko la shakla. That means from heaven they give, but they don't take back. And that expression comes from a story of Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa, a great sage in the Talmud. It says about Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa that every single day a voice would come out from heaven and say, the entire world is sustained in the merit of Hanina, my son, while Hanina, my son, subsists on a small measure of carob from week to week. So he himself lived in utter poverty, and he subsisted on a, a small measure of carob from week to week, and yet the entire world was sustained because of him. So it tells, hi, welcome. Sorry, it's so late. I have to leave my house earlier. <laughs> Come sit down. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome. Good that's right so listen to the story so you guys know each other that's amazing I'll tell you why okay after class come sit down so the story of Rabbi Hanina is no this is a different story the story of Rabbi Hanina is that they lived in such utter poverty remember the whole world is sustained because of him and he himself is utterly poor and his wife says to him one day how long are we going to have to suffer in such poverty pray from heaven that they give you something so he prayed and the form of a hand comes from heaven and hands him a golden leg of a table and that night he has a dream and the dream is that he's sitting in the world to come at a table with two legs while everybody else is sitting at a table with three so he says to his wife will you be satisfied sitting at a table with two legs and everybody else sits at a table with three and she says what should we do you know what pray that they take it back so he prays in the form of a hand comes and takes back the leg and it was taught in a barisa that the second miracle was greater than the first. The fact that he got the leg from heaven was a great miracle, but the fact that the hand took the leg back was even a greater miracle. Why? Because we have a tradition. Min shemaya mehav yahave, mishko la shakla. From heaven they give, but they don't take back. And that is the hallmark of holiness. Holiness is about giving. And the opposite of holiness is about taking. What is the, 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 the leech has two daughters. What are they called? Give, 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 keep giving to me. That's their nature. They have no choice because they have no inherent life. And that's what we're going to learn right now. Continuing. Therefore, they, those of the realm of Klippa are ascribed as dead. For wisdom, Chachma gives life. Hence, that is the opposite of, which, which is the opposite of Chachma, lacks life. And it is written, they die without wisdom. Meaning, death is a direct result of lack of wisdom, Chachma. Therefore, the nations that receive their life force from Klippa are called dead. So, Klippa has no inherent life. Inherent life comes from Hashem, which he rests in Chachma. So, Chachma is considered the source of life. Klipa doesn't have life of its own. That's why it's like a leech, because it knows that if it doesn't grab life from holiness, it's just, in, it's, it's already internally dead. It has no life of its own. It's already dead. Okay.
Just as the heathen nations are called dead, so too are the wicked, wicked and the sinners of Israel, but only before they are put to the death, test of sanctifying Hashem's name, they're called dead. The Talmud says about the wicked people that they're called dead. Why are we calling them dead? Didn't we learn in chapter 18 that every single Jewish person from the greatest to the most sinful and wicked has chachma in their soul. So this, they naturally have a love for Hashem within their soul. So why is it that this wicked person is called dead? He has chachma. So the author is going to explain, the author is going to explain why it is that they're called dead. For the faculty of chachma in the divine soul with the spark of godliness from the light of the blessed insult that is clothed in it, are in a state of exile in their body within the animal soul of the realm of klipa and the left part of the heart, which reigns over them and dominates their body. You see, it says about, it says like this, just like the soul fills the entire body, so does God fill the entire universe. Now let's look at the analogy, the relationship of body and soul. The body in itself is not inherently alive. What makes it alive is its life force, its soul. As long as the body doesn't feel itself, it's healthy. The second the body begins to feel itself, there means there's some type of obstruction of life force, right? If somebody says, not even feels pain, but suddenly feels the weight of their limb, it means that there's something wrong. Something is not in sync. There is a dysfunction either in that particular area or in, in the general health of their body. Feeling the body is a sign of illness. You're not supposed to feel your body. You're supposed to just, the body is supposed to be a perfectly pure vessel in order that the life of the soul just shines right through it. Feeling your body means that there's an obstruction of life force. And that's the same thing spiritually. Somebody who feels themselves too much is spiritually sick. Yes, the world was created, and because as, as a side effect of creation, I'm feeling special vibes going on. So, and we got a special spiritual message right now. Talking to Mushka. <laughs> Listen to this, okay? She, 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 it's speaking to her, and it's really speaking to all of us because we know this. Feeling an eye or a sense of ego is a side effect of creation. That is the way Hashem created the world. The, the ancillary condition of being created means that there's going to be a sense of ego. The purpose of creation is that Hashem should be felt in this world, and that's the inner intent of creation. But every vessel has an inner side and it has an outer side. The inner side can't be without the outer side, but the outer side is nothing for itself. It serves no purpose other than to support the inner side. So, yes, we have an ego, but that's just to support the structure of creation and our ultimate purpose in realizing Hashem. As soon as we start feeling ourselves too much, that's a sickness. That's like the person who feels limbs in their body. That means that the soul is not shining through all the way. There's an obstruction of the life force. It's like the number five. This is an example from Rabbi Steinzal. He says the number five is an abstraction. You write it on the symbol on the paper, and it expresses the abstract, what the, the abstract, what the meaning of the number five is. But just taking that abstract and writing it, giving it a form on a piece of paper, there's going to be certain things of that symbol that have nothing to do with the number five. It's just 
putting an abstraction on a piece of paper means that there's going to be some side effects that are not inherent to the message. There's something else. And that's the same thing. Our ego is part of creation. But as soon as we turn away from the purpose of creation and feeling the truth of the divine and letting Hashem's light shine through us, and instead we get caught up in our own self, that's sickness. That's ego. That's already divorcing the outer part of the vessel from the inner part of the vessel. It has no meaning other than to support the inner part of the vessel. My brother, again, <laughs> told a story when he was younger that he, he was a little kid coming out of my father's shul, Chabad house, and there were two guys just so drunk on the sidewalk, walking in opposite directions. One was a huge, strong guy, and one was a little guy. They bumped into each other, and they got into a huge fight. And it wasn't a pretty scene. There was blood involved. And what were they fighting about? They weren't fighting about that they bumped into each other. They, that was the side issue. They fought that after they bumped into each other, the other guy stole the other guy's shadow. So he's screaming at him, you took my shadow, give it back. And he's saying, no, you took my shadow, give it back. You can't walk off with someone else's shadow. A shadow is just something that comes of your own condition. And the whole world is really, what is, it's nothing. It's just a shadow of Hashem. And as soon as we want to take, run, run off and we're a shadow for ourselves, okay, just give me some time for myself. You stay over there and I'm the shadow and I'm running away. That's insanity. It makes no sense. As soon as you start getting into that mode of being egocentric, that's, that's death. That's klipa. That makes no sense at all. It's sickness. It's like the person feeling themselves too much, their limbs. You know the story in, in the prophets about the little boy who was feeling sick and before he expired, he said to his mother, my head, my head. It doesn't say he said, I have a headache. Just the fact that he felt his head showed sickness. So that is the sign of the opposite of life, is feeling yourself too strongly, being egocentric, and that is the hallmark of klipa. Oh, but you said it's part of creation, though, right? It's part of creation. So if it's part of creation, why is it that? So the klipa doesn't get to choose. That, that's how it is. It's, it's part so that we have, it's there as part of creation, so that we have freedom of choice, but we get to choose. Are we going to be drawing our life force from the klipa? Or are we going to be drawing our life force, God forbid, I mean, God forbid from the klipa? Or are we going to do the right thing, be smart and be healthy, and make ourselves a vessel so that the divine light shines through. So we get to choose where we draw our life force from. And now we're asking, why is it that, these, that wicked people are called dead? Because they too have chachma in their soul. But the reason why they're called dead is because their chachma is in a state of exile. State of what? Exile. Exile. What is exile? What is captivity? It means that you have a perfectly healthy prince and he's abducted. And now, even though he's perfectly healthy and he can use his body, he's not allowed to use his body for himself. He has to work to serve his captors. So here it is with the divine soul's power of Chachma. It's there. It's not changed. It's still the same. It hasn't changed its convictions. But it's giving life to a force to oppose its own self. It's like the prince who is forced to serve his enemy, to those who go against his own father, his own country, and that's what it is. These, these wicked people, they have chachma in their soul, but their chachma is not free to express itself. And no amount of lecturing in the world is going to help. You can't yell at the, the chachma of the soul doesn't want to be in captivity. It wants to be in connection with its source. But here it is, it has no choice. 
part of the way Hashem created us is that our divine soul clothes itself in our animal soul with clothes clothes itself in the body. And so therefore, when an animal soul is the dominant one, it uses the life force that's coming from Chachma in order to fight Chachma itself. And this is exactly what we're going to say right now. This is a secret Kabbalistic doctrine, the esoteric doctrine of the exile of the Shekhinah. Beside Galas HaShekhinah Kanal, this exile of the faculty of Chachma while the animal soul dominates the body echoes the esoteric doctrine of the exile of the Shekhinah. Since the Ein Sof abides in Chachma, as mentioned earlier. So this is exactly what it is. It says in the Talmud that when the Jewish people went into exile, the Shekhinah, the divine presence, went with them. Now, when this is mentioned in the Talmud, this is actually in praise of the Jewish people. That we went to, to the exile and Hashem went to exile with us. In fact, many you know, righteous people were known to like, scream out the statement from the Zohar and say like, That means, Master of the Universe, the Shekhinah is in exile. Like, we're in exile, but you're in exile. You put yourself in exile with us. That's also part of, there's a, a personal exile within each of us. That when we take this power that Hashem has given us, this life force, and we use it, God forbid, against Him, the Shekhinah itself is acting against its own self. And you see, some of the greatest revolutionaries of all time were Jewish people. They had this restlessness, this yearning for transcendence, and they ended up using it sometimes even against Hashem himself. But a Jewish person has this never, satis- never satisfied, is always wanting more. And taking this flame that he has, this something that's little candle that's burning under him that just gives him like the, the ants all the time, and he's, God forbid, using it against Hashem. And when he lives with this kind of condition, he too is called dead. And it's because even though he does have the Chachma in his soul, it's an exile. So that's one part. That's the manifestation of Chachma. And we're going to talk about the next part next class. And I'm opening class now to questions. One second, let me just summarize what we said until now so that we remember. We, we talked about that um, we reminded ourselves what we learned last class, how the the divine soul is analogous to a flame which always wants to escape and become subsumed in its source, absorbed in its source. And in this class, we contrasted the power of holiness with the power of klipa and unholiness. That holiness is about total self-abnegation, wanting to be included completely within Hashem. While the opposite of holiness, the forces of evil, the klipa and the sitra achra are all about, they're takers. It's all about give me, give me. Even the good that they do is only self-serving. And that's why they're called dead, because they're not connected to the power of life, Hashem. And even a Jewish person who has this holiness within their soul is called dead too, while his own power of chachma is in exile within his soul. And we're going to continue next class. Okay, Regina had a question. I have two, actually. One, um, so this state of debt on the Jewish person, is that in the moment that they're not doing this, or is it like a general, like not so that's a good question. You're saying as long as he's wicked, is he always called dead? Right. So yes, but it, it, it's true that because he has this unbelievable potent power in his soul, he too will be feeling moments of regret, and he too will be do, doing good deeds, but he's still considered very, very ill during that time while he is completely a wicked person, and he too is called dead. Until he's a Benyani? No, 
This type of wicked person that's called dead is specifically not a Benoni, and he's not even a Tzadik, a Rasha Viralo. He's not even uh, a wicked person who, you know, um, does good a lot of times, but then also does evil. He's a person who reached a point of utter wickedness, like wicked in the true sense of the word. Those are the people that are called dead. A person who, you know, has some bad deeds and has some good deeds, but for the most part is a good deed person and tries to do the good things. He's not, that's, we're not talking about the rush, the, the essential character of the Russia as we classified him in Tanya. We're talking about mm-hmm. a true Russia. Everybody's going to look at the guy and say, bad guy, he's called dead. Okay. And the second question was, so, so about the non-Jew and the ulterior motive, uh-huh. even when doing something good, that's on a very simple level, and I'm sure there's more to it. So, uh-huh. you know, for someone who may be learning and listening or here and knows amazing non-Jewish people, yeah. Who do good deeds, and obviously nobody knows the inner intentions of another person. But someone who you know sees a sick child, wants to help, has a Jewish friend, goes the extra mile, whatever it is. And if that person is honest with themselves and, to their own knowledge, says that there's no like I'm just doing this for another person, it doesn't have to be anything big like saving Jews from the Holocaust. Just like you know, I don't know, delivering some pizza for lunch. Yeah. How. So that's why we said for a righteous Gentile, his soul too comes from Klipas Noga, just like the Jewish animals. And he is able to do good for no ulterior motive. So this is, this is a person that keeps a Noah Keeps a Noah Oh, so you're saying like somebody who commits adultery, and then no, he says like... like I, <laughs> But the self-interest that he has could be so subtle. It could be, it, he, it pains him. He's not comfortable seeing somebody else uncomfortable. Okay, that's what I'm getting at. And, but we're, we're not classifying that person as a bad person. Right. We're just being very technical and saying he comes from the klipa. It's, it's hard for us because we're, you know, we, we know some, a lot of good non-Jewish people. And we're saying, what? Like, they come from klipa? The reason why we're doing all of this is, again, it's not so that we, to say, okay, they're bad. It's because we want to understand the driving force in the Jewish soul. The driving force in the Jewish soul is something utterly unique. It's it's a power of total self-nullification to the point that they're willing to literally give up their life, not to be disconnected from Hashem. And if they live with this force, it's just a constant yearning of transcendence that they don't have control over. They, I mean, they have the... It's like highest potential. What about, let's say, a Jew who has a sick friend who says, I'm going to give them a call to see how they're feeling. That's a nice act, right? Nothing right. outrageous. Right. But then you have the same non-Jew, not a Noahide observant Jew, right. who also does the same act. And like to me, none of those are self-nullification. Like, it's uh-huh. just a small, easy task. And the Jew could not even be thinking about Hashem in that moment. Right. He'd be doing it just because that seems like the right thing. And he might even have self-serving motives. Right. We're not saying that he, he doesn't have self-serving motives. We're saying that he has the capacity right. for performing good without any ulterior motives, even though a lot of the good that he does is for ulterior motives. And a non-Jew, does. And, and a non-Jew whose soul comes with three utter, yeah. utterly unclean kripot doesn't have that capacity. Of course there are Jewish people who do things for ulterior motives. Is that the right thing? No. <laughs> but, and that's the point. That's our sages say, even if you're not doing it for the right reason, if it's a good deed, right. do it anyway. Any, any other thoughts or questions? Nancy. 
Okay, I thought you said Klippa is here so we could have freedom of choice. And I was just wondering, like, um, why, what is that about? So, so, you're, so you're saying um, why, is, why is Klippa exist or why do we have freedom of choice? Um, Can I help? Because the Klippa is like your ego. So if you don't have that, if you're purely good and you don't have that ego, then you're not like... You don't what should I do? You don't know, like, you don't do you know, you, you'll always choose good, right? Because, and then your klipa, which is like the negative sort of thing, gives you the opportunity to, you know, to actually choose, to have a choice. Yeah, because if you don't have the klipa, then you, you don't, mean? you'll get to then choose. You don't know. Because yeah. then you're all, it's all good. The klipa is the ego that makes you go away. Yeah. What's right, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Okay. So, so God created us with that because, um, because he, because it, it's almost an affliction. So when we say that, when, when the Torah tells us that we are <laughs> created in the image of God, it means, what does it mean that we're created in the image Freedom. of God? Freedom of choice. Only human beings have the independent power to choose. What gives us the independent power to choose? If we didn't have a struggle, then, and we're just doing all good all day, it's not to our credit and it's not a choice. If we had no evil inclination and all we had was this, all we had to deal with was our divine soul, we would ne- there would never be a struggle in anything. We'd be just like angels. That's exactly what angels are. Hashem wanted more than angels. He wanted us human beings who have good and evil and, and resist the evil and choose to do good. That gives us the power of choice. If there was no evil, we wouldn't have the power of choice. Without do we like power. having the freedom of choice? Sometimes people don't want to have the freedom of choice. They're like, I just like wish, yeah, I just want to be a robot. <laughs> just well, we don't have a lot of we a lot of things we don't have choice. I'm just saying, but you but but, but you, what you said reminded me of something. So uh, my brother my brother Zushi once told me this, um, like an analogy, of a guy who goes to the next world, and. It was, it was about, gosh, I can't remember exactly what it was, it was about what he has. He says, so what, what is it that I have? Is it my mind? He says, no, your mind is not mine. Yours, it's mine. I gave it to you. Is it my soul? He goes, no, it's not your soul. It's the soul I gave to you. Is it my family? Like, what am I responsible for? Is it my family? And he said, if you don't own your family. My children? No, you don't own your children. What, are you, what is the only thing that you own? Those were your choices. Your choices. The moments you have. We don't get to choose our, the family we're born in, the, the struggles that we have. All those are not our choice. You're right. In that instance, we don't have freedom of choice. What we do have freedom of choice is what we do in the moment at the struggle. The decision. Yeah, the decision that we made. So, you know, do you, you know, get to, you know, a person doesn't get to choose different things, whatever the situation is. They didn't get to choose their, you know, their family, to a certain extent, even the, your friends, the people that you grew up with. Hashem put them in your life for a certain reason. Yes, Shelley. It's funny you should, thanks for remembering my name. <laughs> Thank you. Um, it's funny you should say that. Just recently, we were at a lovely family's house for dinner, Friday Shabbat dinner, and this fa- the c- couple, she's, the wife is part Egyptian and part Ashkenaz, and the husband is a Reformed Jew. They're the most amazing couple and have a, a joint family because it's both their second marriage. 
but the wife, the husband, you know, wasn't uh, learned in too much of Yiddishkeit, uh-huh. but the wife is in Sephardic and Ashkenaz. She was so amazing. Just the little things she said at, during the Shabbos dinner, and that was one of the things she said, and I was amazed to hear that. She said, did you know that everybody in uh, mommy's womb chooses their mother, or Hashem allows them to choose their mom and dad. Did you know that? I think that comes from Chabad. That does. You're right. You're right. Is that? Yes. Heard of that? Yes, I did hear that. I was amazed to hear that. That we do get to choose our family. That's true. But right now, now, now being, but once, once you're being born, though, once you've been born in a physical body. That's not your choice anymore. Your soul, your soul chose that. Your soul chose that. But doesn't Hashem? But that was before. The soul does. The soul has the that capacity to agree to be in a certain family. But this is something different. Even this before is they're born. even be, but only before they're born. Okay. Once we're born, that's right. it. It's, it's too late. It's, <laughs> conception. Yes, before conception. Mm-hmm. So before conception, Hashem. I mean, 